the you know, public pools were closed to Orientals, you know, at one time. What? And restaurants. Some restaurants really had a sign out saying whites only. And, you know, it's hard to, to uh, realize that today. Welcome to Sounds Japanese-Canadian to me, the Marpo Monogatari, with me, Raymond Nakamura. This Nikkei National Museum podcast is made possible through support from the Yosef Wask Publication Grant and the Vancouver Heritage Foundation. We acknowledge that this episode comes to you from the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples. Marpole was home to many Japanese-Canadian families in the early 20th century, including those of David Suzuki and Joy Kogawa. In 1942, they, along with thousands of other Japanese-Canadians, were forced to relocate. In this episode, we explore the community of Japanese-Canadians in pre-war Marpole. You'll hear the voices of former residents, their descendants and associates on how they interacted with each other and with those from the larger population. Marpole is in the southern part of Vancouver, British Columbia, with the Fraser River to the south, on the ancestral, traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples. In the early half of the 20th century, Marpole was a suburb of Vancouver. It became a transportation hub by rail, water, and road, enabling its residents to find employment and social connections beyond their immediate surroundings. As a result, the Japanese-Canadian families that settled in Marpole intermingled with non-Japanese more than residents of many other Japanese-Canadian communities in British Columbia. Laura Fukumoto's grandfather, Fujio Fukumoto, and her great-grandparents, Toyomon and Umechio Fukumoto, lived in Marpole before the war. She never met them, but lives in Marpole now. Here, she talks about how she connects to their lives. So my work as a theatre artist and as a poet, I often do come back to these questions about my family and you know generally I try to approach with curiosity and with imagining what it might have been like to live in Vancouver and travel through Vancouver and to live in Marple and visit your friend on Powell Street and you know maybe catch a um, baseball game on Powell Street you know like what 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 would it have been like at that time and I think that's a lot of the, the magic of theater and of exploring history is, is bringing those images and those questions to life. And to, you know, this, this got me imagining, like my family would have walked from Selkirk along 70th to Oak Street if they wanted to go to Powell Street, which that, that's the other Japanese Canadian neighborhood in Vancouver. So of course they wanted to go to Powell Street and they would catch the number 17 streetcar, walk into the middle of the road and then carry on and, you know, literally probably pass the apartment building that I currently live in, because um, my apartment building is a heritage building, um, and take the exact same bus, get off at Victory Square, which kind of still existed in a, a similar iteration. 
I don't know what it was prior to World War II, but Victory Square as a gathering place is so symbolic. Like I've gone to a number of protests there, like any protest downtown ends at Victory Square. And it, you know, it's so it's just so interesting to imagine that like, you know, of course my grandparents or well, my grandfather um, and my, you know, great aunts and uncles all went on that exact same bus ride or streetcar ride. Um, yeah, and so so it's it makes you imagine and know that history is so much more present and alive um, than than you can imagine at first when you're actually physically standing here. Author and poet Joy Kogawa was born Joy Nozomi Nakayama in 1935. She moved to Marpole when she was about two. Here she recalls going to kindergarten by streetcar and taking family trips. I can remember going with my mom the first day and then after that I remember saying goodbye to her and waving to her as I went on to the streetcar. Then I, you know, I was doing all kinds of things on my own. I was really little. But I remember having to scramble up on the chair, you know, on the side where we were sitting and reach up and, and pull the string to let them know that it was time for me to go. And I remember one time I missed the stop and I was still very little. So then I, when I got off the next stop, I, I had the sense to turn around and go back to where I needed to go. And I can remember one time when I was on the streetcar and a woman looked at me and asked me a question and I didn't reply. And she said to me rather crossly, what's the matter, cat got your tongue? And I was shocked to have somebody speak to me aggressively because my parents were very gentle. I know that we did ride in a car, um, sometimes like to go to Capilano Canyon or, but I don't think we owned a car. Residents of Marpole were able to fulfill most of their basic needs through local stores and even neighbors. Mio Ishiwata Ling was born in 1919 and grew up in Marpole. In an oral history conducted in 1985, she talked about shopping in the area. Well, there was an um, um, American outlet called Piggly Wiggly in those days. It sounds funny, but uh, it was like Safeway, what it would be Safeway today, I guess. And then there was uh, in the, a lot of independent stores in those days. Here is Joy Kogawa talking about one of her chores as a five-year-old. I remember taking a nickel down to the corner store on Granville and buying a loaf of bread. Alan Masayoshi Arima, known as Mush, was born in 1931. Here he talks about getting a chicken for his mother, Same Arima, from Shika Suzuki. Warning, there will be blood. David's grandmother raised chickens and uh, eggs in her backyard. And occasionally my mom would send me to pick up a chicken from Mrs. Suzuki. She would go to the chicken coop, grab a ch squawking chicken, and bring it to a large tree stump which served as a chopping block and chop its head off with an ax. The blood would be spewing all over it while the chicken danced crazily for a few moments. She would hand me the dead bird and I would take the chicken home, holding its feet while the blood drizzled to the ground. 
Upon returning home, I would have helped my mom pluck the chicken, even though I dreaded the chore. And to this day, I cannot handle a live chicken. <laughs> but I still enjoy eating chicken, cooked of course. Sam Yamamoto was in high school when his father Toraichi and his mother Yasu Yamamoto decided to move the family to Marpole. They wanted to avoid the spread of tuberculosis in the cannery on Sea Island where they had been living. Here he talks about general options for health care. If you got sick, um, you go to Steve's and Fishman's Hospital. They used to call it the Fishman's Hospital. Yeah, but uh, I remember some being there was a hospital, the St. Joseph, that uh, Japanese used to go quite a bit, Orientals used to go quite a bit, Chinese. Uh, I, can't, I can't remember the name of the hospital, but there was one that used uh, to go. But I think the group that lived in Sea Island, uh, Richmond, I think they went to the Fishman's Hospital in Stevenson, I think. The degree to which Japanese-Canadian families intermingled with white people, or Hakujing, varied from family to family. Here's Mush Arima. I also can't recall having any Hagujing friends that I played with at school or at after school. In contrast, this is Liz Nunoda talking about the friends of her father, Arthur Asao Nunoda, who was born in 1921 and grew up in Marple. My dad said that most of his friends, well, because the schools he went to were mostly white pupils, so a lot of his friends were Caucasian. And then he had his Nisei buddies, but um, most of them were from Marpole originally. It does seem that relationships between Japanese Canadians and non-Japanese took some negotiation. Scientist, broadcaster, and environmentalist David Suzuki was born in 1936 and lived on Selkirk Street in Marpole. On page 49 of his memoir, Metamorphosis, Stages in a Life, he recounts this exchange with a new neighbor. We lived in the back of our dry cleaning shop next door to our Canadian neighbors, the McGregors. Their youngest son Ian was my age and my best friend. One day a new boy who had moved in down the street approached Ian and me. The boy told Ian not to play with me because I was a Jap. At that point I shot back, but I'm Canadian just like you. I speak English, don't I? He reluctantly agreed. I eat the same kind of food as you, hesitant acknowledgement. My clothes are the same as yours. Well, I guess you're right, he finally admitted. You must be a Canadian, but you still look like a Jap to me. Mio Ishiwata Ling describes the disturbing behavior of some of her neighbors as well as examples of racism at that time. Um, I guess traditionally her families tended to keep us, you know, together and rather than moving with the, with the white community. Also, I, I used to get chased by them. I guess this is um, natural though, because even today I find that, that the older ones bully the younger ones and I don't think it had anything to do with uh, the background, racial background. But I know I used to dread passing certain homes because they'd come out and, and um, you know, chase us up off the street, you know, like 
but I don't think it had anything to do with racism. But they were just plain mean. They were bullies, you know. We weren't allowed in many places, like the swimming public swimming pools were prohibited, and uh, like there was the you know, public pools were closed to Orientals, you know, at one time. What? And restaurants, some restaurants really had a sign out saying whites only, and you know it's hard to to uh, realize that today. But in those days, uh, they didn't allow Orientals to enter certain quarters. They and uh, well, it's terrible. The new Canadian newspaper was launched in 1938 with an office on Powell Street. It billed itself as the voice of the Nisei, the second generation. Here's an article describing how it was viewed by a mainstream newspaper in Marpole. From the New Canadian, July 25, 1941, page 1. The New Canadian, a welcome visitor. The value of the New Canadian as an organ of expression for the Nisei is told in a 500-word article in last week's issue of the Marpole Richmond Review. Headlines The New Canadian reveals the mind of the Canadian Nisei, say the weekly review in brief. A welcome visitor to the review office is a little well-printed magazine called The New Canadian, issued in Vancouver by the second-generation Japanese. It is difficult for the average white Canadian to get to know and understand the mind of the Oriental. Even the second generation withdraw themselves into a polite acquiescence when approached, revealing little of what they think of Canada and Canadians. The new Canadian is valuable in disclosing more of the Nisei mind. School was where Japanese Canadians had no choice but to intermingle with non-Japanese. David Suzuki's father, Kar Suzuki, was born in 1909 and grew up in Marpole. From an oral history recorded in 1983, he talks about starting school when the area was still known as Eburn. Then went on. So English was a hard subject at school. Mathematics come pretty easy. Here is Mio Ishiwata Ling on her perception of school. We went to school that was segregated. This is hard to believe, but grade one to grade three Oriental children were segregated in David Lloyd George School. Uh, yes, thank you. And um, it was very embarrassing because we couldn't understand why, you know, they did this. But it was a principle. Yeah, he. I don't know. He just didn't like the idea of Orientals, you know, being, uh, uh, you know, dispersed with the, the other children. So after he passed grade three, uh, we became part of the integral. But it's the arrangement was very bad, I think. Children all spoke English, so that um, that wasn't the reason for the principal discriminating. I think he just couldn't be bothered with 
the Orientals. I think that was his attitude. I don't know how far he felt, you know, and you know, that way about, you know, the Orientals. But his daughter was in my high school class when I got to high school, and um, there was a distinct line drawn. We, you know, we never associated socially. We never associated with them. David Lloyd George Elementary School opened in Marpole in 1921. When the segregation began in 1924, the Japanese-Canadian families in the neighborhood asked Peter Kuwabara to intervene. He was originally from Gifu Prefecture, but became a Christian missionary. His first wife, Hana, had died of the so-called Spanish flu in 1918, leaving three boys who were eight, six, and two years of age at the time. So some were probably still at the elementary school when all this happened. Peter remarried in 1923 to another woman from Japan named Kina. She became an important community figure in her own right, and many years later received an Order of Canada for her work in Ikebana and efforts to bridge cultures. Mr. Kuwabara collaborated with Reverend Kennedy from the local St. Augustine Anglican Church at 71st and Selkirk, where some Japanese-Canadian families already attended. Kennedy had been a missionary in Japan and was supportive of Japanese-Canadians. Together, they approached the school trustees and then the principal, Bruce Harvey, to resolve the issue. Mr. Harvey claimed that Japanese-Canadian children did not understand enough English, which meant more work for the teachers, and non-Japanese parents were complaining. Reverend Kennedy offered to set up a kindergarten at St. Augustine's to prepare Japanese-Canadian children to speak English. Harvey agreed. Soon, a kindergarten for Japanese-Canadian children four to six years old was set up with Miss Mabel Colton, the first teacher, and Miss Shetke as assistant. Miss Shetke also taught English to the Japanese-Canadian mothers who had formed a mother's association called the Haha no Kai to support the kindergarten. Esther Matsubuchi was born Esther Yorimi Sunohara. She is an aunt to Canadian Olympic ice hockey player Vicky Sunohara. Here, she talks about going to kindergarten and speaking different languages depending on the context. I went to St. Augustine's kindergarten. David and Geraldine Suzuki were my classmates there. That's one of my uh, fame things. <laughs> I think probably English because our kindergarten teacher was English, but I guess at home we spoke Japanese. Author and poet Joy Kogawa recounts going to the kindergarten in Marpole with her mother, Lois Masui Nagayama. I can remember the first day in which she took me, and I can remember the other Japanese boy from the neighborhood, Makoto Ito, and um, how my mother was, I was shy and I clung to her, and I remember her sort of urging me to, to go out there and uh, said, you know, uh, she said, look, they're looking at you, you know, that was supposed to be something to shame me to, to go, and I did. I can remember the songs, the two of the songs that we sang. <laughs> the one was about 
the wind. January jolly and February bold. Two little brothers from the north wind cold. Mother winter called them to mind what they were told. And January jolly and February bold. Blow, blow, wind so cold. January jolly and February bold. Kindergarten was still not that common in British Columbia at that time. David Suzuki's aunt, Aya Suzuki, went all the way to Toronto to train as a kindergarten teacher from 1937 to 1938. The Japanese-Canadian community seems to have appreciated the kindergarten teachers. Here is a note published 17 years after Ms. Shekti began helping with the kindergarten. From the New Canadian, October 3rd, 1941, page 5. Honor Teacher. Honored today after a record number of years teaching Japanese children in the Marpole Anglican Kindergarten was Miss Ai Shekki when the Marpole Ijikai and Hahanokai presented her with a silver tea service at a tea at the Japanese school hall. Ms. Shekki is leaving to be married shortly. The New Canadian also published announcements about the graduation ceremonies of kindergartens. Graduating kindergarten became a way to certify that Japanese-Canadian children were Canadian enough to attend elementary school. Here's Joy Kogawa on her first day. I remember the first day of school at the David Lloyd George School. And, um, making bread. That was what we did the first day, as I remember, it was so delicious. And I remember how we were taught to read and how we used our fingers as rulers along the words, you know, just holding it like this. So no one taught me, but I, I know that the teacher lined us up as who was the best reader. And uh, she said that it, I, I just used to read well and I would read flat out but she said if I read with expression I would read out the front but this other person who read with expression but didn't read very as well as I did she was the first and then I was the second. <laughs> Liz Nunoda's father Arthur Asao Nunoda had two older brothers including one named Tak. This is Liz talking about records of Tak going to school. I don't know if my dad did, but I know my uncle Tack did because I was digging through some old documents and I found my uncle Tack's name on like a, a roll call, like a student roll call. And at the top it says, yeah, register of Division 14, David Lloyd George School, 1st October 1936. I think it's kind of hard to read, but so there's very neatly handwritten names of all the pupils and they're all Japanese names. So I assume my dad went there, but I'd only see Uncle Tak's name written here. Japanese Canadians in Marpole seem to make ongoing efforts to get along with the larger community. The following is an article from the New Canadian newspaper dated June 12, 1941, six months before Pearl Harbor happened. Nisei give Union Jack to Marpole School, Vancouver. 
It was just a presentation attended by no fanfare, but it meant much to all concerned. The David Lloyd George Public School in Marpole Wednesday provided the setting, the monthly meeting of the local parent teacher association, the occasion, and the object, a beautiful Union Jack. And when the two somewhat bashful Nisei girls, Takako Arima and Sumie Tokiwa, presented the flag of the empire to Principal B.S. Harvey on behalf of their organization, the Marpole Kyoyukai, graduate body of the Marpole Japanese Language School, there were some who felt a lump in their throats. It was just that Japanese Canadians in the Marpole community wished to repeat Tennyson's immortal words inscribed on the accompanying card. One life, one fleet, one flag, one throne. One of the girls who presented the flag may have been one of Mash Arima's older sisters. Here is Mash talking about what school was like after December 1941. I do recall going to school after the bombing and having Betty, a blonde girl with freckles, calling me a Jap. I wasn't sure what it was all about. Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor hadn't affected me yet. Life was still the same. One day in the early months of 1942, Mr. George Harvey, the principal, called all the Japanese kids into his office to tell us that this was our last day at the school. I can't recall whether he had an explanation as to why we were being dismissed, but his last words were, I hope to see all of you back at the school. Of course, that never happened. Now let's get back to life before all the Japanese Canadians were forcibly removed from the coast in 1942. When students graduated from David Lloyd George Elementary, they had to go outside of Marpole to neighboring Carisdale and the Point Grey Junior High School, which opened in 1929. Here is Mio Ishiwata-Ling on her teachers. I found the teachers were very understanding, especially in primary years, mm -hmm. although when I got into junior high school, we went to uh, Point Grey Junior High School. Mm -hmm. I had a teacher who said to me, uh, are you sure you wrote that yourself? Because um, I was interested in writing even at that time. Mm -hmm. And she said, did you lift this out of a book? And I said, no, because I guess uh, maybe she wasn't used to oriental children writing composition. Anyway, um, that's one thing that sticks out in my mind. We had a couple of other teachers that, uh, you know, they picked on Oriental children, but then you find that, you know, anywhere you go anyway, I guess it's a matter of taste. This is Liz Nunoda on her father, Arthur Asao Nunoda, and his perception of this new environment. I think my dad attended Point Grey Junior Hi. Oh, yeah. And another memory of his was, um, you know, the rifle sanctuary in, I think it's in Delta. So the rifle family, I guess they're, they've been around for a long time, very wealthy family. And my dad mentioned that one of the Mr. Rifle's sons used to be driven to school every morning in a chauffeur driven limousine. So that really stuck out in my dad's mind that you know, here's this rich kid. But um, my dad, you know, thinking back on the conversations that we had over the years, 
he was always very aware of his status as a second class. Going to high school was an even bigger change, both geographically and socially. Here's Carr Suzuki on getting to school in Carisdale. Then uh, we used to go, when we went to McGee High, McGee High School, either streetcar or ride a bicycle. The new Canadian newspaper included reports on life in high school. Here's one from April 1st, 1939. School Shorts, McGee Medley. Introducing McGee Medley to these columns for the first time, perhaps something might be said about our alma mater. 28 of about 1,000 students are Nisei, from Marpole, Celtic and Acme Canneries, Carisdale, and even Steveston. Mio Ishiwata Ling was not so happy with McGee. The rich kid bothered her, too. I went to McGee High School, and uh, the first couple of years, I just didn't feel very comfortable. Um, McGee High School is in the Carisdale, and very uh, affluent society. We were from the other side of the tracks, coming from Marple. And um, I just thought, well, we had the choice. There's no high schools in Marple, so we, we had the choice of are they going to McGee High School or King Edward High School. It was a completely different attitude when I got to uh, you know, King Edward High School because the teachers seemed to be, I don't know, a lot more understanding and um, they were more supportive, I guess. My marks came up considerably. I think I just felt like I was a, a no, nobody when I went to McGee High School. Now, I'm just telling you how, how vast the, um, the class system worked in McGee because George Rifle was uh, chauffeured to school. Rifles own the distillery, even now. But uh, it shows the difference that, that we were from the other side of the tracks. And uh, he was chauffeured to school. And uh, we were, I guess, nobody's from the other side. But in King Edward, it was different. We always felt like second-class citizens, you know. I mean, because we weren't allowed to enter socially in many of the places, I guess we just felt we had to remain by ourselves. You know, it was kind of sad because you you felt you wanted to do things out, you know, join the outside group, but uh, you weren't allowed. And socially, you know, you were not acceptable. I imagine it's just like that with the the, the blacks in the South, you know. They, you're there, but, but you're on name only. And uh, I know one or two of athletes that made it, but um, even they were restricted to, you know, if, if you're a good rugby player in those days, rugby was the thing. And uh, I know a couple of uh, prominent athletes, but, but there again, I mean, the doors are closed and uh, they only went so far. According to the Vancouver School Board archives, King Edward High School opened in 1910 at 12th and Oak, where Vancouver General Hospital is now. It became a community college in 1962, but burned down in 1973. Here is Mio Ishiwata Ling, 
on life at King Edward High School. I, I guess I was a rebel because I, I would always, you know, change around where other people were stayed and they, you know, stay with, uh, I guess, a tradition. And, and I just broke away and I thought, well, I'm going to go because my girlfriend said that she was going to uh, King Edward. So I said, well, I think I'll change too. And I made the change and I was glad I did because I guess I felt like a human being after I got near to high school. Sam Yamamoto was already in high school when he and his family moved to Marpole. Here he is talking about his commute. Well, I was actually going to high school. And uh, I had one year to left, one year left, in the grade 12 left to finish the high school. And uh, when we moved over, they used the bicycle to go over two bridges to go to Richmond High School. Because of the fact, there's only one year left, and the uh, uh, principal, that uh, Mr. McNeil, gave us permission. If my good friend Donald Ross uh, had moved also too, he um, he wasn't living in the cannery, but uh, he was my schoolmate and classmate, and he had also moved in around Mar- just on Oak Street, uh, you know, several blocks from our way, and uh, so he and I bike together every morning, every evening, pardon me, in the afternoon, uh, uh, going to Richmond High School to finish off grade 12. Before the war, many, if not most, Japanese-Canadian kids lived double lives. Here's Masharima talking about his daily schedule. Life was pretty simple, going to David Lloyd George Public School, and later on the same day, the Japanese language school held at the Marple Japanese Community Hall. This was home to the Japanese kindergarten classes and the Buddhist church. Liz Nunota's grandfather, Soichi Nunota, was included on a 1942 list of members of the Marple Japanese language school. Here is Liz talking about her father, Arthur Asao Nunota, going to Japanese school. I'm pretty sure he did because he said that uh, my grandfather was the president at one point of the Marple Japanese Language School. And actually, I have a photocopy of, I think it was published in 1990, this little Marple community paper. And on the front page, they had this old photograph of um, all the students that had attended that school. And it was taken in the 30s, I'm pretty sure. And I could see my grandpa sitting in the front. Barb Miko Gravelin's mother, Yachio Mike, was born in 1912 and grew up in Marpole, the eldest of seven children. Barb talks about her mother's language skills. My mother was the only one of my aunts and uncles who went to Japanese school. So her English was not that great for a Canadian born. I mean, it, it, was, it, was, it was okay, but she, she was never very fluent or articulate in English because she did attend Japanese school. Here is Sam Yamamoto talking about the Marpole Japanese Language School and the head instructor. I finished my sixth grade uh, Japanese, you know, on, on, on Sea Island. Then moved over to become, and I, so uh, the, the last, um, a couple of years, really, um, that, that I 
attended the Japanese language school in Marple. Fortunately, um, I had a very excellent uh, teacher, Mrs. Abbey. And the reason she got the job was because when she applied for a, a job in Vancouver language, Japanese language school, they found out that uh, she had a higher level of education than the principal. And at that time, you know, no, no, for a lady to be. <laughs> so fortunately, we've got her. So in the matter of about a year and a half, two years, God, you know, I'm honest, you know, the amount of Japanese I learned is incredible. Yeah. It's a matter of two years or so under her guidance. Yeah. Uh, without her, I don't think um, I would have been ever been able to read, write Japanese. Yeah. It's just a matter of two years, though, really. Yeah. In fact, we were three of us, a couple of them us were, became very fluid in Japanese where we had to write a little article in Taidik Nippo, you know, get it published. Yeah. First of all, we have to, um, three of us anyway, but two or three of us, uh, we became quite fluent in Japanese, had to make speeches in front of a crowd in Japanese, you see. So what she taught was uh, strictly uh, Japanese, was probably spoken around Tokyo, I would say. That's where she graduated from, one of the universities in Tokyo, you see. Yeah. I would say very fortunate, I was very fortunate anyway to being taught by this Japanese lady, Mrs. Abe. Most of the first-generation Issei seemed to be Buddhist upon their arrival to Canada. Buddhism remained a significant presence in various Japanese-Canadian communities, including Marpol. They used the same building to worship as the Japanese school on Selkirk Street. Christianity, on the other hand, was associated with Western customs. Here is Kar Suzuki talking about the conversion of his father, Santaro Suzuki. Hagujing refers to Caucasians in Japanese. Among the Japanese-Canadian Christians in Marpol, there was also a generation gap between the Issei, the first-generation immigrants from Japan, and the Nisei, the second generation who were the first ones born in Canada. From the New Canadian Newspaper on April 11, 1941. Nisei Fellowship. The Nisei Christian Fellowship Meeting will be held in conjunction with the Issei Meeting on Good Friday, April 10th. 
The place is the Marple Baptist Church, 71st Avenue and Moncombe Street. Meetings are held morning and afternoon, and the Nisei are given a special invitation to attend the afternoon meeting at 2 p.m., when Mr. Satsumi Morikawa and Mr. Cecil Wilkinson will be the speakers. Those who wish to attend both meetings are asked to take their lunch. Tea will be provided. Any further particular may be obtained from Mr. Bill Harry. Here is Anne-Marie Metten, the executive director of the historic Joy Kogawa House, describing some of the Christian events that took place back in the day. I know there was a Baptist meeting hall on, West, on, on Granville Street, just south of West 64th Avenue. It's Ragnar Jewelers now. And uh, both Ralph Steves, Joy's childhood friend, and Joy have talked about going there on Sunday nights for, you know, these song and, and music, um, you know, revival meetings, <laughs> which sound mm -hmm. like a lot of fun. Um, so there uh, have been mixed, mixed gatherings then, people of different backgrounds getting together. I think so. I think, I think Joy was definitely part of that and singing there and being on on a stage and singing as as a young child we have a lot of shenanigan stories from these three boys who were childhood friends uh, you know lots of playing with bb guns and crazy outdoor activities that because you know these are the recollections mm -hmm. of uh uh we were talking about free range before, right? So where you, have, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. put the children out in the morning and then they come in at dinner time. And here is Joy Kogawa about the experience. I was shy about everything, but I remember there was at the end of our block, there was um, a gospel hall. And I can remember at one point, I think I was four years old, I was you know, picked up and put up on stage, which was embarrassing. Um, then, uh, and then I was required to say John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who should ever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So I remember standing there on stage and feeling horrible because of all this attention and then having to say that. So I said that. And then one of the Steve's brothers said to me later, you were crying. And I said, I was not crying. No, I don't think I was crying, but I think I was really nervous. <laughs> that was the Marpole Gospel Hall, which I believe is still there. And I think it's still called the Marpole Gospel Hall. It's at the end of the block, I think. Religious differences have been known to lead to strange relationships. Here is Mio Ishiwata Ling on how it affected her friendships. And uh, this girlfriend I went to school with, but but as the years, uh, uh, you know, passed on, our interests differed. She was Buddhist, and I was a Christian. I guess that kind of you know, gave us a split because, you know, we would go to church. I went to United Church in Vancouver in those days, and her family were Buddhists, and they associated with Buddhists, and so that brought on the rift, I guess. But when we were uh, really young, we were fast friends, and they just lived about two, three blocks away from us in, in the Marple. 
The Japanese hall on Selkirk Street not only housed the Japanese school and the Buddhist temple, but acted as a general community center. Here is Esther Matsubuchi recalling the involvement of her older brothers, John Misao, David Soji, and Philip Tameji Sunohara. Yeah, they remember the community center where they went to Boy Scouts on Friday nights, and、uh, it was quite a big community center. And the Japanese community was quite vibrant, and there w a s grocery stores and everything Japanese. Liz Nunoda's father, Arthur Asao Nunoda, had two older brothers named Jim and Tak. Here, Liz describes a group they were involved with, which may have been the same one Esther mentioned. There was this thing called the Boys Brigade, and、uh, we've got photographs of my Uncle Tak and Uncle Jim in uniform, like a group photo of a bunch of Nisei. And so my impression is that the Boys Brigade was kind of like a cadets, but they didn't allow Japanese in the regular cadets. So Um, this fellow named Ian McGillivray, and my dad called him Captain McGillivray. He got this idea, I, I, and again, I assume he lived in Marple too, but he got this idea to have an all Nisei boys brigade. So he started one and they would go to meetings. I, d- I don't know what they did. I guess they're kind of like Boy Scouts or cadets, but、um, my dad talked about him a lot. And he's very kind, and、um, I think he was born in Scotland. Um, but I, his, so, Mr. McGillivray's parents were from Scotland. And in the group photos, he was always wearing his regalia of the kilt and everything. But I'm not sure if he, I think he was probably born in, you know, immigrated from Scotland. But,、um, and my dad talked about Haggis and everything, you know, he, he, so they, they sampled Haggis. Here's a note in the New Canadian newspaper about a speaker's event sponsored by the Japanese Canadian Citizens League that took place at the Japanese Hall. Hide Hyodo had been part of a small delegation of Japanese Canadians who went to Ottawa to lobby for the right for Japanese Canadians to vote. She became a teacher in Steveston, one of the very few Japanese Canadians hired. And during the internment, she led the organization of education for Japanese Canadians at Hastings Park and later in the camps. Thomas Shoyama became editor of The New Canadian and later became an important figure in Canadian politics. From The New Canadian on June 15, 1939. JCCL speakers at Marpole Meeting. Roundtable discussion on Nisei problems. Over 50 first and second generation residents of the Marpole district attended the roundtable discussion on Nisei problems at the Japanese Canadian Citizens League held Saturday evening, June 10th, in the Marpole Japanese Language School under sponsorship of the School Graduate Society. Presided over by Ichiro Nishimura, president of the society, and Mrs. D. Abe, the principal of the school, The meeting was addressed both in English and Japanese by three speakers from the JCCL. The JCCL speakers, Ms. Hide Hyodo, explained how the League had been established as a province wide organization to work for the welfare and protection of the second generation, and told the story of the memorable Ottawa delegation of four Nisei 
who appealed to the federal government for the right of franchise. Thomas Shoyama spoke on the aims of the JCCL and explained the work of the League in the Youth Congress movement, as well as the recent Island Nisei Convention. Edward T. Ochi, General Secretary of the League, addressed the meeting in Japanese at some length, explaining how the League was working for the welfare of the second generation by striving to create better relations with other Canadians and by education, the Niseis in their responsibilities of citizenship. After the meeting, tea was served by the feminine members of the society, the roundtable discussion continuing upon matters of current importance, including the franchise, fishing licenses, and trade licenses. At least some members of the Japanese-Canadian community had an appetite for political issues. Here, Mio Ishiwata Ling describes her mother, Umeno Ishiwata. In those days, like my girlfriend's parents would never... I don't think they knew one issue from another, you know, whereas my mother read, she read well. Well, she was a nurse too, so maybe they had something to do with it before she came. In the home episode, we mentioned that a few families, including Joy Kogawa's, had a piano. In some cases, playing piano was a way to connect to the outside community. Here, Liz Nunoda talks about her father, Arthur Asao Nunoda, and his interest in jazz piano. He loved jazz piano, and he said that he used to take lessons, um, like his, his parents sent him to lessons with a Nisei uh, instructor, a woman. So he'd, he'd go to, to dutifully to his classical piano lessons, but then he said he'd sneak off and go to jazz piano lessons with a fellow named Joe Williams, I believe. And he said not not the baseball player, but he had this, the same name as a baseball player. But that he was really good. So, yes, my dad's passion was jazz piano, actually. His music, yeah. He said that he saved up to buy one, a, a parlor upright. But, but he said he had like a cardboard keyboard to practice on before he could afford to pay for the, the real pianos. So he did buy his own piano. Sports were another important aspect of social interaction. Liz Nunoda's father, Arthur Asao Nunoda, had a very athletic older brother named Tak. Liz never met him, but here she talks about some of his endeavors. I think he liked sports, and he went to all of his brother Tak's rugby games, rugby matches. Um, and uh, so apparently Uncle Tak was like a star athlete of some kind, and so his so he played a lot of rugby and he was a rower. Uh, did a lot of track and field, I think. And apparently, he was so good that the rowing team, the all-white rowing team, which ordinarily did not allow Asians on it, they wanted him on the team. So he rowed with them. And um, the Marilomas rugby team, I think, is what the team that Tack played with. And I don't, I don't know if it was it was probably all white. I think it was like a mainstream rugby team. So he was like this, apparently a star athlete, and uh, then you know, died so suddenly. The most common mention of Marpole in the pages of the New Canadian newspaper was for their basketball team. Here are some examples. From the New Canadian, March 15th, 1940, page 8. 
Marpole Man Maul Steveston to take Tidy Cage trophy. Saburo Mike, who stands barely five feet in his socks, is nicknamed appropriately enough Sub. Last Wednesday, he supplied the deadly torpedo-like blow that scuttled the hustling Stevestonite's hopes for, for the junior cage crown into Davy Jones' locker. He knitted a slew of baskets to lead the champion Marpole Quintet to a convincing 45-43 victory over the Fisher Lads and to the Taidiku Junior Cage Trophy for their second straight year. This is from the New Canadian, October 24, 1941. Marpole Skate Party The Marpole Senior Basketball Team is staging a roller party at Happy Land this Monday to raise money for uniforms. This high-stepping outfit managed by Munio Mike is not sponsored and have been supporting themselves for the last three years. Cagers and cagettes of the league should get behind and support this event. Remember, the date is October 27th at the Happy Land. Tickets may be purchased from any member of the team or from Ernie's. Saburo Mike was the youngest of three athletic sons in the Mike family in Marpole. They played a variety of sports. The eldest, Munio or Muni, also starred for the Asahi baseball team. Jiro or Jinx played basketball and other sports. One of the sisters, Chiyoko, married another Asahi ball player, Frank Shiraishi. Barb Miko Gravlin's mother, Yachio Nishimura, was an older sister in the Mike family. After marrying Kinzaburo Nishimura, she moved to Powell Street, but would still visit her parents, Uhe and Tachi Mike, in Marple with her children. Here, Barb recalls her oldest brother visiting the athletic uncles in Marple. I do remember that my brother, my oldest brother, his memories of Marple were, uh, and I, there are photos of him on a tricycle, so he, he couldn't have been more than, let's see, he was born in 33. It, it looked like he couldn't have been more than four or five. As he got older, he said he was babysat by um, his uncles who played baseball and they would tie a ball uh, on a string to a, a cherry tree in the backyard and he have not hit balls until he was exhausted. And my eldest sister remembers that my uncles played basketball. So they must have, you know, had access to a basketball court, whether it was in Marple or whether it was in Vancouver. Here's an article in the New Canadian about how the Japanese-Canadian community in Marple supported Canada's war effort in Europe. January 26, 1940, page 1. Marpole contributes to war effort. Joining the ever-increasing number of organizations, the Marpole Japanese sent money to Mayor Telford, asking that it be forwarded to Ottawa for use in connection with the Dominion's war effort. Enclosed with the monetary contribution was a letter which read in part, since the outbreak of the war, it has been our sincere desire to make some expression of loyalty to our adopted land. It has been our privilege to reside in Canada for many years, and we are indeed grateful for the many advantages which this country has given us. 
Now that Canada stands in need of support, we feel that we should like to assume some part, no matter how small, of the responsible task which she faces. Unfortunately, such efforts were not enough to keep the Japanese Canadians in Marpole from being forced to relocate in 1942, along with thousands of other Japanese Canadians on the coast of British Columbia. Properties they left in the hands of the custodian of enemy property were sold off without permission for a fraction of their value. In the 1950s and 60s, the houses in Marpole were demolished and replaced with low-rise apartment buildings. Here is former resident Sam Yamamoto on what remains of the Japanese-Canadian community in Marpole. From there up um, on Selkirk Street, on both sides of Selkirk Street, I couldn't believe that there's no sign of old Marpole left at all. No remnant of the Japanese section that used to be up along Oak Street there. It's all apartment buildings, both sides. And also on Oslo side, it's full of apartments. There's no sign of any Japanese settlement at all left in Marpole. Absolutely not. Presently, there's a park that uh, I was involved in as well, too. A Bissell Park built right now. And that's where the start of the Japanese sort of Marpole settlement, Japanese settlement started from there northwards. I was involved in this um, cleanup of that area um, for Ebisu Park. There's a little Ebisu Park there, you know. And uh, I was a little bit involved in that, um, helping San Fukawa. And um, the sign is still there. And the, yeah, uh, it's, uh, I'm surprised all the, Upkeep done it very well. I'm surprised how clean it is now. We hope you enjoyed this stroll through the community of Japanese Canadians living in Marpole before 1942. Thanks to those who shared their stories and comments in this episode Alan Masayoshi Masharima, Laura Fukumoto, Barb Miko Gravelin, Joy Kogawa. Mio Ishiwata Ling, Esther Matsubuchi, Wendy Matsubuchi, Anne Marie Metten, Liz Nunoda, Kar Suzuki, Sam Yamamoto. Research by Linda Kawamoto Reed. Editing and original music by Itamar Sitbon. Supported by the Tech Nation Career Ready Program. Thanks to Sue Beely, Robert Wimet, Roland Tanglao, and others from the Digital Ladders team who helped us pivot from a walking tour to a podcast. Raymond Nakamura was the writer and host. If you have any stories about Japanese Canadians to add to the Marpo Monogatari, we would love to hear them. And don't forget to tell your real and virtual friends about the Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me podcast by sharing it on social media. Sayonara!